0: let's talk development episode 10. assalamu alaikum this is ijaz nabi today we'll be speaking with professor imran rasool uh, who's a professor of economics at uh, university college london Uh, it's a premier institution uh, for for economics in in england Uh, dr imran rasool is a brilliant economist Uh, he has a fantastic publication record um, and he has been editor of some of the leading academic journals in economics. Uh, we are delighted to have him with us. Um, he's of course British but with a with Pakistani origin. Um, uh, and he's been working for many years on poverty and what to do about it in, in Pakistan. Uh, the issue about poverty is uh, not just uh, how you identify the poor, but also, what you can do to address poverty in the long term. Uh, Not just short term cash support, which is very important, but also what kind of assets can be given to the poor so that they climb out of poverty. So Imran, we'll be talking to you about an issue that is uh, of concern to everybody, uh, which is poverty in Pakistan. Uh, You've been working in this area for quite a while. Um, very serious research, evidence-based research, uh, and not just in Pakistan. You worked in Bangladesh and you worked in other countries as well. So just just to start off the conversation, what is um, what is your view of uh, of the extent of poverty in Pakistan? Uh, if we think about poverty beyond consumption poverty, because we know that Pakistan has done very well in reducing poverty as measured in consumption Uh, but clearly there are more ways of looking at poverty if we do that what is your view of uh, of the extent of poverty rural poverty in pakistan
1: so ultimately we we concerned about poverty because it's uh, a way to capture people's economic well-being and the traditional way to do that is through measures of earnings or through measures of consumption and as you say those Statistics are well documented, sort of both the, the levels and trends of of those measures of poverty in Pakistan over time. However, I'd always argue that we can try to broaden our, our conception of poverty to look at other measures of human well-being, one of which relates specifically to the idea of people's resilience to economic shocks, something that we're observing both in the context of environmental shocks that Pakistan's been subject to the pandemic and other kinds of macroeconomic shocks that the, that the society is currently subject to in that sense we might want to move beyond just basic measures of consumption to also think about individuals and households' vulnerability to those changing circumstances and in that sense measures of resilience related to asset holdings that households may have may be more appropriate for thinking not just about the levels of well-being but the dynamics of well-being that households are subject to so There I put a little bit more emphasis on understanding the asset base that households have, and that can be of two types. That can be in terms of the human capital that they have, the skills and talents that they have that allow them to take up economic opportunities, as well as measures of productive capital households have access to, which is especially relevant in in rural areas where households tend to be engaged in small-scale self-employment, where essentially returns are going to be captured by combining their labor with those types of physical capital. So I think of those as broader measures uh, and perhaps more appropriate for measuring vulnerability, resilience, which is ultimately why we care about poverty. There may be other measures as well, specifically related to human capital measures very early in life, such as rates of stunting. Um, So stunting is the phenomenon where a child is more than two standard deviations below international norms uh, in terms of their height. And so stunting rates in Pakistan are high and actually diverging away from what we observe in many other parts of South uh, South Asia. That's despite the fact that Pakistan has improved on other dimensions of consumption-based poverty. And so those very high rates and worrying trends in stunting, and which really capture children's very poor starts in life, which are very hard to then overcome later in life, may be very worrying markers of increased rates of uh, poor well-being and real poverty in, in, in the sense that in an intuitive sense that we, that we might think we want to capture that uh, lead cause to concern, but also open up scope for other policy interventions that might address those dimensions of well-being uh, very directly.
0: Okay, so so given this way of looking at poverty, how widespread do you think poverty is in rural Pakistan?
1: I think it remains incredibly widespread. Um, although I haven't seen that the, the latest numbers on each dimension and it's going to vary across different parts of the rural economy in Pakistan. Certainly in, in conjunction with many other countries, there's not that one pattern describes, um, the dynamics in, in all locations. Some areas will be subject to more types of structural change where individuals can, can uplift themselves and have been able to do so o- over time. And there may be other extreme pockets of poverty that are very hard and resilient and that represent somewhat new challenges for policymakers to try to address but the need to do so is even more important given an increasingly globalized world where we're seeing many countries and many parts within those countries being impacted by shocks and economic circumstances in other parts of the world whether that's through the pandemic or uh, high uh, uh, prices for, for, for energy also filtering through and having you know serious
0: consequences for many parts of the developing world Uh, there is a lot of concern about inflation uh given the macroeconomic uh, situation today and and this is a this is a, a a perennial concern in pakistan because of our frequent macroeconomic crises um addressing the macroeconomic crises on the one hand means that you uh, shrink demand. And so there's slowdown in income earning opportunities. But at the same time, um, the exchange rate uh, value adjusts and, and imports become more expensive, particularly energy imports become more expensive. This time around, it has combined with general increases in, in prices worldwide. So, so there's considerable concern that uh, if if the broad measure of poverty means and that there is a a much larger incidence of poverty than has been estimated previously uh how do we how do we take care of the poor in in uh, while we go through these short-term stabilization um, uh, measures
1: well, it, it's certainly very important to protect people's standard of living by making sure inflation doesn't spiral out of control. So it is very important for macroeconomic policy to try to bring inflation down. There's no greater way of entering into poverty than through rising prices and basic uh, items becoming unaffordable. So it's certainly necessary for policymakers to try to grapple with these uh, with these challenges. And the exact policy instruments to do so depend on the ultimate sources of why inflation is rising, whether that's because of you know demand outstripping supply and bottlenecks in, in sort of the domestic economy, as well as inflation being imported from uh, overseas, say through rising energy prices. The exact policy remedies and the time frame over which they will uh, have impacts will depend on the exact sources of inflation. I think many countries are battling with inflation rising, but for multiple reasons at the same time as we're coming out of the pandemic also combined with sort of events in, uh, in, in Ukraine. For the rural economy in particular, they're somewhat buffeted uh, from some of these changes because of the subsistence level at which individuals reside, which means that not all households are fully engaged in market activity. So in that sense, they're slightly buffered, but at the same time, you know, many of the items that they uh, consume are subject to inflationary pressures. And it's very hard in the short term for governments to try to ease that without trying to put in place price restrictions or other types of very serious policy that might actually have counterproductive effects in, in, in the medium term. So ultimately, although Pakistan seems to be always subject to short run inflationary and macroeconomic shocks, essentially this is reflective of long term structural problems in the economy. And until we start to really try to challenge, challenge those, raising productivity, raising productive capacity, improving the competitiveness of some certain key industries, we're always going to be seeing recurrent macroeconomic problems, whether they're in the, in the in the in 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 the form of rising inflation or balance of payments deficits. So it's really grappling with those longer-term structural challenges that that is uh, the first order thing. That means the next generation won't be subject to these types of fluctuations to, to the same extent.
0: Right. So. <clears throat> Uh, we experienced uh, a very similar sort of uh, um, shock to the incomes of rural poor in 2008 and nine. Uh, energy prices, again, uh, were going up. Uh, and at the same time, Pakistan had a balance of payments crisis and therefore was cutting back on aggregate demand and slowing down income earning opportunities. A BISP program was the result of that concern. And uh, you've done a lot of work on on BISP. It's essentially a unconditional cash transfer program. There is one, I think, very important condition, which is that uh, uh, that woman is the recipient of uh, of, uh, of of the funds of the cash transfer. I think that's a very important condition. Um, uh, but uh, but BISP was was the outcome of that. Um, You've been doing a lot of research on cash transfers, uh, but also asset transfers. Uh, Tell us a little bit about uh, what your assessment is of cash transfers versus uh, asset transfers and what kind of assets.
1: Okay, so, I mean, just to begin with, just to emphasize that BISP has been an incredibly important safety net that's been provided to to the rural poor in Pakistan. It's a policy that's been implemented and to a large scale, very well targeted, and is actually the envy of many other countries trying to think about how to develop their their social infrastructure. Mm -hmm. At the same time, it it raises many other important questions in terms of the design of the social protection system for the poor. And the key question that's gone back decades is whether transfers to the the poor should be provided in the form of cash assistance, as as BISP, or in the form of in-kind transfers. And so in some of our most recent work, we've been trying to work in in, in rural parts of Punjab, in in, in Pakistan, to really understand what does it make a difference in terms of whether you provide social assistance in-kind versus unconditional cash transfers. So we've been running a large-scale and long-term randomized control trial in about a 100 villages in rural um, Punjab to answer this question directly using a a randomized control trial, which is really the gold standard for understanding the effectiveness of of, of policies in this area. For
0: our audience, if you could just unpack randomized control A
1: randomized control trial is essentially very similar to what we observe in sort of medical trials, where if you're trying to test the efficacy of a a new medicine, let's let's say it's a pill, we would have a a set of uh, patients and we would randomly assign some of those patients to receive the, uh, the pill and randomly assign another group to be the control group who just receive either nothing or just a placebo. Now those ideas that have been applied in medical sciences can also be applied in social sciences to understand the effectiveness of the of, uh, development interventions. So that's exactly the setup that we have here where in these hundred villages, we subdivide them into 30 villages essentially receive no intervention. For them, it's business as usual. We just observe what happens in the rural economy over, over the time period of the study. In another 30 villages, we offer the poorest households in those villages asset transfers. So, an in kind uh, transfer where households are free to choose different types of assets up to some cap, which corresponded to about 60,000 rupees in, in the mid 2010s. And with each of those assets that they choose off that asset list, which comes at no cost to them, they're free to choose those assets up to that cap of the value of assets, they get some associated training. And then in the third group of villages, we offer households who are equally um, poor, the same set of assets, but with one additional choice, where they can take the same value, the 60,000 rupees, just as an unconditional cash transfer. So this intervention took place in 2014, and we've been tracking these households since 2014, to observe what are the impacts of them either receiving the social protection in the form of asset transfers, or in the form of um, cash relative to assets in in that third third group. We've been tracking them actually post the pandemic as well, but the results that we currently have are for the four years from when the intervention first starts up until 2018. (coughs) And so we track households um, outcomes two years past the intervention, four years past the intervention. So let me tell you a little bit more about what the households actually decide to take up in terms of the assets and and, and the choice between assets and cash. So in the treatment group where the poor are offered this many of different types of assets, those assets cover both livestock as well as capital that they could have invested into setting up a small scale business or even capital uh, assets in the form of uh, helping agricultural production. The vast majority of households choose to take up assets in the form of livestock rather than setting up a small-scale business, rather than setting up in uh, in, in farming or expanding their current farming activities. In the second treatment group, where in those villages where households uh, are offered the same list of assets plus the choice to take up an equivalent valued unconditional cash transfer, 96% of households prefer to take the unconditional cash transfer rather than a form of asset. So that reveals to us that households think that they can use the, the the cash in a way that allows them to do at least as well in terms of economic well-being as they would have done had they chosen one of the assets. And what do they actually do with this cash? Well, the vast majority of households tell us and they actually do then go and invest this cash into productive assets in the form of livestock. Um, So essentially, the two interventions seem to start off with very similar types of intention. And then we track what happens to households' consumption uh, and their asset holdings. Again, to go back to what I mentioned earlier, we're interested in assets here because they're so closely related to the future resilience that households may have. And we track that for two, two years and four years. So essentially, what we find is that at the end of the four years, the returns to both interventions in terms of what households actually do and their changes in consumption are actually very similar between the two forms of social protection. That in both cases, whether we assist the poor with providing them with assets or providing them with unconditional cash transfers, we see increases of consumption of comparable magnitudes, um, increases in uh, reliance on, on the production of their own milk or other types of nu- nutrition's. Uh, being quite similar, and similar increases in terms of the productive assets that they then accumulate, often in the form of livestock or the value of livestock. There are some subtle differences between the two types of intervention. So for example, households who receive unconditional cash transfers are slightly more likely to invest those transfers in home improvements, so improving the quality of the roof of of their dwelling, improving the quality of the wall of their dwelling, which may well be something that Gives them great utility, but doesn't build resilience for them in, 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 in the subjects of future shocks, as we're observing with the current macroeconomic crisis. So, what's going to be interesting is that when we get to analyze the data pre and post pandemic, we'll be able to say where the differences between these forms of social assistance really open up when these when when households are hit by these types of aggregate shock, as we observed during the pandemic. But that's a question that we're yet to get to. But at least for the first four years of the of the intervention we find relatively small differences between the returns to asset transfers relative to the returns to cash transfers ultimately the way in which we try to offer social protection either in, in in the form of assets or cash doesn't really make a make make the make a huge difference what seems to be much more important is that these transfers are made at scale when we're providing these transfers either in either form we're not giving a small Injection of capital or a small injection of cash. The value of assets that we're providing is 60,000 rupees The value of cash we're providing is equivalently 60,000 rupees So this large-scale type of intervention seems to be much more effective irrespective of the way in which it's uh, provided relative to smaller scale interventions such as microfinance Where there's now a body of evidence from Pakistan and other settings. It doesn't really have transformational changes and allowing households to enter into uh, combining their labor with capital, say, in the form of livestock or setting up small businesses. So this is a big push intervention. But the form in which that intervention takes, ultimately, our research seems to suggest doesn't really make, make the huge difference. What's more important is giving this type of uh, social assistance program in the first place.
0: So there are two questions that arise. One is giving microfinance in the hope that this will lead to resilience and giving a cow in the hope that it will lead to resilience um what what i understood you to say was that international evidence suggests that giving a cow may be may contribute more towards building up resilience than giving a, a credit uh and the reason for that uh, i gather from your from listening to you uh, previously is is that a you need you need information to trust transform cash into a productive asset and and what you providing in this experiment is that additional information and therefore uh, they're able to convert cash into assets in a more productive fashion is that is my is this correct
1: um, to, to some extent, we, we, when we provide the cash, we're also providing information or a lot of guidance to households to be very clear on developing an investment plan. So the cash is not provided in, in, in a sense, in isolation from, you know, helping households think through how they might use that productively. Okay. So that certainly makes a difference for why cash is so effective here. But I say the key distinction b- between the cash that we provide, the assets that we provide, and traditional forms of microfinance. It's just the scale of assistance is much larger. Microfinance, you know, the, the 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 clue is in the title. It's on a relatively small scale in terms of the injection that it provides for households, as well as the term structure of microfinance re- requiring repayments to start relatively quickly. In both forms of asset transfer and cash transfer, there's no repayment structure there at all. So households have both time. Uh, and the capability to experiment before they make those investments. That's typically not afforded to households in the scale in, in, in the presence of microfinance. But ultimately, the international evidence now suggests that microfinance doesn't lead to those large-scale changes because that's where you need large-scale investments to allow households to really reallocate their labour away from low-return work in agriculture towards more productive work combining their labour with capital. But that's a risky transformation to take and one that requires a sufficient injection of resources, either in the form of cash or in the form of assets, to allow households to make that leap from one type of economic activity right. to another. So it's really the scale that matters.
0: Right. So, so your research is, is, is clearly extremely important uh, in terms of global knowledge about uh, transfers and, and social protection. Um because uh, you know, people are still struggling with cash versus in kind transfers. Uh this is separate from the question of conditional and unconditional yeah. transfers.
1: So our research suggests don't struggle with that too much. Okay. The, the 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 devil is not in that element of the detail. It's much better just to get on with one of these policies, implement them at right. scale, right. and there you will start to see transformational change. Okay.
0: So so either cash or in kind. They will both work, yeah. but do them on, on a scale, absolutely, and not in, in small bits and pieces. Absolutely. So, what does this say about uh, BISP? I mean, I, I say that because I was on the board of BISP. I, I, I believe it's a very good program, but uh, it's now in the process of. As soon as growth comes back, there will be an attempt to scale it up in terms of the uh, in terms of the transfers that take place. Um so what does your research say about how to think about BISP going forward So our, our research doesn't directly speak
1: about smaller scale uh, cash transfers as as BISP is but I'd go back to what I I'd reiterate what I said before it's an incredibly important safety net that was put into place in Pakistan Our research doesn't suggest that larger scale transfers are in any way a replacement for those types of assistance Indeed they may well be complements. The one reason why households are able to take up some of the um, transfers that we provide is because of the safety net that's been given to them over time okay. through BISP. So there may well be very important complementarities there okay. um, that I don't think our research would suggest that the BISP is in any way inferior or should be should okay. be removed. One one element though that I think is important, it comes back to the at scale, that providing resources as a big push and sort of one big injection can have very different impacts on households than providing the same resources but spread out over say a two year time period. That would be the next experiment essentially to understand whether the timing of when resources are provided really matters or whether it's just what people can receive. Now obviously if if we look at textbook economics, that would suggest the total amount of resources that you get, no matter when you get them, is what really matters because you can always trade money over time. But if you're fit subject to any kinds of credit market frictions or constraints and that model breaks down yeah. and then having sort of a, a, a lumpy type of in, uh, uh, transfer that's made to you can allow you to overcome some of these other hurdles and then become self-generating and self-enforcing in terms of the returns that they that, that okay. So.
0: So when BISP was designed, there were two questions. One was <clears throat> to provide continuous small cash support. And the other was uh, eventually to equip the, the poorest households uh, that BISP was dealing with uh, to, to have them exit uh, poverty. So what your research shows is that you know, there may be circumstances, there may be situation in which um, uh, small, uh, regular cash support uh, is fine. But if you want people mm-hmm. to actually build up the, the resilience to, to begin to exit poverty, you need to make larger transfers rather than small transfers. And these can be cash, but with a lot of information about what to do with that cash and it can be kind in terms of livestock. Absolutely, so I,
1: I, I'd have the sense that BISP has achieved its first objective to a far greater extent than it's achieved its second. It, you know, it's, it's, the evidence would suggest that BISP is not really a graduation program in the sense that it allows households to escape poverty. It does allow them to face the many types of idiosyncratic and aggregate shocks that households in rural economies often face, say through ill health, either of family members or through productive assets, if livestock fall ill as well, other, you know, climatic shocks that houses are subject to, it's incredibly um, frequent how households in rural areas have to face these types of shock. And that's why resilience to those shocks, whether provided by BISP or, or some other format, are so important. But really what allows households to graduate away, permanently away from poverty is really building up this productive base of assets whether that's through improvements in human capital or allowing whatever human capital they have to combine with other types of capital to generate higher earning streams which are less volatile over time which is why many households prefer to move into work rearing livestock as a as, as a means to generate earnings as a result of our intervention that really then sees households move away from poverty permanently and that's really the ultimate aim of development
0: interventions, right, right? So, so, so BISP is, is, is fine with what it does, but you need additional interventions to, to, do the kinds of things that your research is, is pointing to. Um, adding to global knowledge is great. Uh, but having an impact on policy in Pakistan means that you are uh, in touch with institutions that have the responsibility of helping poor exit uh poverty uh which which will be in institutions which are complementary to what bisp does mm-hmm. clearly the more successful we are in getting people to exit poverty build up their resilience the less will be the pressure on bisp to provide uh, uh, handout uh, mm-hmm. cash support which institutions do you work with um, so
1: I, I mean, just to, uh, reinforce the premise, I mean, building knowledge essentially has very little value if that knowledge is not utilized. Yes. And ideally, we'd want that knowledge to be utilized going from the complete stream from producing the research of the highest quality to actually getting that research onto the agenda amongst policymakers and for them to take it into account when designing new policies or modifying existing policies its one very important ingredient for for making the right choices ultimately we don't have the resources to do everything so as an economist your training is all about the trade-offs that we face as individuals as a society and understanding you know which are the policies that we need to prioritize that's why this is incredibly important to me it's not that doing nothing is an option and if we are going to do something there's a lot of different possibilities here so the key challenging The key challenge is, in a sense, not whether this policy works or not, but is this policy more effective than the alternatives we have in mind? And that's where you really need good evidence. So organizations like CVPR, like CERB, like many of the researchers at IGC and and through Lums in Pakistan that I'm working with, are really helping to try to translate some of those policy findings and those research findings into tools and messages not just of what to do, but about how to think about rural poverty and how to think about the forces at play and balance them off, that will be so important for making the right policy decisions. As we're seeing now with sort of increasing aggregate shocks that are not originating even in Pakistan, but many Pakistanis Mm -hmm. are suffering from, we have a narrow window to get these policy choices right. And uh, making small errors for a large number of people is very costly so it's really important for us to draw on all the talent and all the all the knowledge that we actually have to get these things right just having a small scale improvement over a large number of people has dramatic impacts on on right, the lives right. of people
0: I, I completely agree and i think i think embedding these ideas in uh, you know in the academ- a- academia uh, younger people uh, students who will then be in different positions of decision making in the country uh, equip- equipping them with these ideas is extremely important, and I think that you do fantastically. I mean, you, you, you come and talk to universities here regularly, uh, but I also thought that you another anchor that you have here is the Pakistan Poverty Alleviation Fund in Islamabad, uh, which has the responsibility for for exactly that. You know, exit strategies uh, for the poor. Uh, uh, so it's 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 great that you are able to. Inter- I'm on on the board yep. of, of BPAF and and they keep us informed about the research that you're doing, and and I think some of that they're beginning to use in. Uh, they're doing some work for. Uh, they were doing some work for FAO uh, on on some of these exit uh, interventions, uh, and they were benefiting. For I don't know where it stands now.
1: Yeah, but, and uh, the evaluation uh, I was describing, comparing asset transfers to cash transfers has been a long-run collaboration with PPAF. And it's been a pleasure working with them. It's an organization that wants to generate evidence and learn from that evidence in making that translation. So that's always a very fruitful collaboration. So let me turn
0: a little bit uh, at the conversation to some current issues. Uh, We know, for example, that climate change is big. Uh, And and it seems that... uh, most of our discussions, whether we are talking about, you know, economic issues concerning cities or firm capabilities or state capability or or energy, etc., these are now being filtered through uh, the lens of climate change uh, and how we should adjust the way we approach problems and find solutions in the light of what's happening uh, to, to shocks that come from climate change. Uh, your work and climate change I, uh, how, what have you had how have you had to adjust to rising concerns about climate change in, 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 in your work of equipping people to become resilient?
1: So clearly resilience is going to be key for how people face up to many of these aggregate shocks that are coming from uh, changes in, 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 in greenhouse gases and, and, and the climate. I would say just that we're sitting here in Lahore and I'm looking out the window and I'm seeing a tremendous amount of smog outside. So in terms of environmental issues that we face in Pakistan, it's we, we know that Lahore is one of the cities at the very top of, uh, of of pollution. And so many of the environmental challenges we face are ones that actually we can grapple with internally. The ones that we're subject to from external changes are going to be very challenging, very tough, but um, the internal ones in terms of providing incentives for farmers not to um, burn. There are some studies that are now showing evidence to some extent that individuals can be re-incentivized not to engage in those activities. And I think the urgency to think through more policies that provide farmers with alternatives to crop burning uh, or allow them to use other technologies to mitigate the effects of that. Really, our first order, especially when we couple that with growing evidence, looking at the effects on health from that type of pollution, right. the effects on productivity of that type of pollution, seems to suggest unless we can really solve that kind of locally produced environmental problem, many of the returns to other policies we're trying to implement to improve human capital, to improve productivity in in, in the workplace will simply be dragged back by some of these locally produced environmental shocks. And it's absolutely striking sitting here, yeah. thinking that through, but there are things that we can potentially do uh, to, to mitigate those issues.
0: So clearly, I mean, we need to reorient our thinking about resilience uh, in light of the kind of shocks that we will expect from climate change, the kind of shocks we had last summer, <clears throat> with the monsoon. Uh, but also there are some endemic problems like the quality of air uh, which will have productivity effects not only we are affecting people's health workers health but also you know if the if crops are not getting sufficient sunshine uh, what does that mean for crop yields so so clearly those will need to be have to be uh, those will have to be taken into account my final question to you you know i've been studying pakistan for a long time and I have always remained cautiously optimistic about Pakistan. Um, it is now clear that some important directional changes need to be made. We get caught up in, uh, in a macroeconomic uh, sort of treadmill, and we can't see crisis treadmill and we can't seem to get off it every three years, five years we find ourselves in that. And more and more people saying that this has to do with the structure of the economy and that structure has to change. Is, there is resistance to change. And I, I can extend that argument at the sectoral level. We need policy change everywhere, controlling uh, the quality of air, improving the quality of air requires change in the way we do things. Uh, um, uh, providing assets to the to the poor in the rural areas requires change in the way we think about these things but the view out there is that there is elite capture in pakistan and somehow the elite is so entrenched in the current structures and is benefiting so much from the current structures that it is unwilling to change how do we and have other countries incentivize elite to to feel that they have equally to benefit from a changed structure
1: so like you, I've always been cautiously optimistic about Pakistan and it's incredibly invigorating whenever I'm here to see the incredible levels and breadth of talent that I see amongst young people in universities and in the research community. There's no lack of ability to, to, to work on these issues and to provide the right evidence that can help guide policy. The issues, as you say, are sort of at a much higher level in terms of Potentially, elite capture distortions in various markets, um, and a lack of political will, uh, sometimes or capability in, in others, to actually translate what we know and what would be beneficial into actual real policy choices. Stefan has. How, a- how
0: would you How would you define elite capture?
1: Uh, it's, it's where those in positions of power exploit that their power in order to benefit themselves at the cost of wider gains for society. And elite capture can come from various types of poorly designed institutions that give power to certain groups and allow that power to persist over time.
0: But wouldn't you say there is similar elite capture in in the UK, in the United States, even in India? Hey, why, why, why has India been able to changed the structure of the economy, so that it now exports as a share of GDP much more than Pakistan does, at one time it was the opposite.
1: So some some might say that's down to changes in institutions or the design of institutions that create competition as well as accountability to those who are in power. So clearly, the design of the political system has a lot to, to play with this. But it's also an element of how other potential actors such as the army the large businesses other elites also come together and whether they form a coalition to benefit themselves at the expense of other individuals so stefan durkon has a recent book sort of describing his experiences across many many different developing countries of what really fundamentally drives the process of economic development so it's a it's a, it's, it's a great book that goes through many different examples of how in some countries, the elites came together to understand sort of, in a sense, the trade-off between growth and inequality, that it was better for them in their own best interest to allow growth to take place, which would benefit them, but also benefit others at the same time, rather than kill the golden goose. Now, what drives those differences? It can be a matter of individuals, partly institutions, partly short-term thinking, um, there's a whole variety of different levers that, that can potentially be nudged, but ultimately it remains sort of a, the, the, the million dollar question of why did Pakistan and India diverge to such a great extent, given that, you know, with uh, less than a hundred years ago, they had very similar conditions. Um, and you could even say much more recently than that, they were much more similar. In the 1990s. Essentially the divergence yeah. occurred in the, in the 1990s with liberalization in India. And all the policies that followed subsequent to that. Pakistan always shows that potential. It always shows that potential, whether it can actually grasp the nettle and make those changes, which means that some will gain and others will lose in the short term. Um, but that's where I was c- coming back to what I was leading to before in terms of the trade offs that we face. Um, but it's elite capture is really that entrenchment of power that needs a breaking of those coalitions and a realignment of of, uh, of those interests. And that comes from holding people to account, but also generating competition in some of those key markets that, that, that provide power. Imran,
0: thank you very much. This has been a, a fantastic conversation. Thank you, um, just. it's been my pleasure. It's uh, uh, We'll keep bothering you, we'll keep bringing you in uh, to talk to us as your research proceeds, but thank you very much for sharing your thoughts with
1: us. Thank you, it's been a pleasure.